The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. A guest on the show today, his name is Ryan Keel. Ryan Keel will join me here momentarily. Ryan was a longtime NFL long snapper uh, and then had a career at Under Armour where he was the guy responsible for signing Jordan Spieth. Uh, to Under Armour. He's had an incredible professional um, life. Uh, he's also a local guy. Uh, went to Walt Whitman, my alma mater, played football with my younger brother, went to UVA and played for Norv Turner, um, one of the first teams he played for in the NFL with Norv Turner uh, in the mid-90s. Ryan Keel will be our guest here momentarily. Um, as is the case uh, often after the radio show, there is you know, stuff that breaks or news that comes out. And on this particular day, Ron Rivera um, held a press conference. And I will have an opportunity to go back and listen to it in more detail and have more on it with Tommy tomorrow on the podcast and much more on the radio show. By the way, real quickly on the radio show, subscribe, please, if you haven't. Really helps us, doesn't cost you a thing. Rate us, review us if you haven't done that as well. Um, Ron Rivera said several things um, today that I thought were interesting. First of all, as it relates to the whole, um, investigation and the Beth Wilkinson stuff, he basically said, this has nothing to do with me and didn't have any comments on it. Um, Alex Smith, he was asked about Alex Smith and the GQ interview, and he admits and said, I didn't disagree with anything that Alex said. I was scared to death to play him, you know, which is what we sort of talked about. What Alex Smith said in GQ, duh, any team wasn't going to plan on having him back. Any team was going to be surprised that he was cleared to play football. Any team was going to make plans to move forward without him. And then any team, specifically this one, was going to be scared to death about putting him back out onto the field. Um, some real honesty there uh, from Ron Rivera. About cap space, um, he said, we got, we got a lot of cap space, but we're focused on locking up our own guys too, um, in addition to looking outside. And then on the quarterback, Ron Rivera said, look, we've got time. We're going to be exploring all options. We don't have any answers right now, but we are, quote, out there. Closed quote. They're still looking. Um, they're still looking for 
a quarterback. Uh, by the way, he was asked specifically about Cam Newton, and he said, look, I can't talk about specific names because free agency hasn't started yet. He was also asked about how Landon Collins was progressing, um, and he said, well, we'll need to see. I think that's a very interesting player to watch over the next couple of months. Um, I don't know that they aren't you know, convinced at this point that Cameron Curl's a better, cheaper answer. They lose a little cap space in releasing him. Would be very hard to trade him coming off an Achilles injury with that contract. But I think the Landon Collins situation is an interesting one. And I will point out that I think I'm in the minority on this, but I didn't think he was terrible last year like many of you did. I thought there were moments where Landon Collins looked like he was going to be a good fit for Jack Del Rio and Ron Rivera's defense. Um, But anyway, all right, uh, that's it uh, on that front. Um, A guest, Ryan Keel, right after this word from one of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, joining me now on the podcast is actually, you know, a friend, a family friend um, from way back in the day, a former NFLer with multiple teams, including the Washington football team, a longtime NFL uh, long snapper, which I think is a very interesting niche in career. Um, but Ryan Keel um, grew up in Bethesda, attended Walt Whitman High School, went to UVA, played at UVA, and then played for the Niners, the Skins, the Browns, and the Giants in a long NFL career. And then is one of the guys responsible for signing Jordan Spieth to an Under Armour deal. So you've got a lot of life and uh, experience, professional experience. One of my favorite things, though, Ryan, is I, I, I pulled your Wikipedia page up, and clearly Andy Eichberg's had some sort of um, in, uh, influence on on your early years where it says, Keel attended Walt Whitman High School in Bethesda, Maryland, where he was a prep All-American selection as a senior. One of Keel's notable high school achievements was scoring the Vikings' only playoff touchdown in nearly 20 years on a late-game stor- scoring strike from quarterback Andy Eichberg in the 1988 Maryland State playoff loss to Randallstown. Rarely do you see a marginal high school 
quarterback make it onto a Wikipedia page. <laughs> um, but I coached Andy in basketball, and by the way, never met a shot that he didn't like, as you know. Um, yeah. But but the reason I I, I I find familiarity with that is because my younger brother played on that team with you, and I, I'll sure. never forget uh, that high school playoff game. Ryan was a hell of a high school football player. You really were. <laughs> I, I think that you know the the focus on you catching a touchdown pass probably didn't really represent the kind of high school football player you were on defense, right? Yeah. No. It's listen. <laughs> it was. Um... Yeah, it was that was fun. That's funny. I'm sort of laughing here as you're telling me this, Kevin. I mean, you know, we had we had some good years there and, and some good players, but high school football to me was a lot of fun. And and um, I played basketball, played baseball, did all of it. So I think I finished with ten varsity letters over my four years at Whitman, and uh, really had a good time in, in football. And Andy, yeah, Andy threw. I mean, that's that. All that's fact, though. <laughs> I mean, Andy didn't throw the ball. Our, our starting quarterback was. Was heard a guy named Pat Denny who ended up going on to James Madison playing a few years and and uh, yeah no it's uh, that's all true yeah all very it, true you know that sounds like an edit from a, a good friend or family men- member of of Andy Eichberg you know just out of curiosity and and I think I have this right Marty coached you guys right Dickerson on uh, football Rich Cameron oh so Cameron uh, was still the coach yeah Rich was there and then Marty was the basketball coach Marty was was the, Marty's first year was my senior year as the basketball coach at Whitman and it okay. was a great experience Marty passed away actually um a I couple of years ago at a pretty young age but I've told the story many times our senior year at Whitman um, the biggest guy in the team was Anthony Dilwig, who was 6'4". Anthony went on to play in the NFL, played for the yeah, Packers, sure. played at Duke. He was our biggest guy at 6'4". Um, and what we made up, um, you know, what we didn't have in, in, in size, we made up for in the lack of overall athleticism on the team. And so we lost our first five games by like an aggregate of 100 points. And Marty Dickerson, who ended up coaching uh, football um, at Whitman too, Marty came in one Saturday morning and installed a double high post delay offense. No shot clock back then. In fact, the county hasn't had a shot. I think just recently got a shot clock. And the first game we in, we played um, at Blair, they were ranked 10th in the city, the old Blair, uh, over on, on Sligo um, Creek mm-hmm. Avenue. Um, yep. And and the score was three to two at halftime, and we lost nineteen to eighteen in double overtime. But after that, we won like eight of our final eleven games playing that we, that way. We became so proficient, the scores climbed. I mean, they were into the thirties after a while. Um, but it was one of, and you've had, you know, having gone through the, the athletic career that you've gone through, you've had so many coaching experiences, but I've always told the story about Marty Dickerson as my high school basketball coach my senior year, and what a lesson that was, a life lesson in that you can always sort of figure it out. You know, there's always a way to compete and to win, you know, potentially. And he figured it out with us. He was really actually such an influence on so many of us that played on that particular team. He had better teams and more talented teams down the road um, that he didn't have to play that way with. But, um, you know, can you remember a coach from at any point that really had sort of a life impact beyond just an athletic impact on you? Yeah, well, it's funny. You hit on a few different things. One, you know, that ability to sort of constantly adapt, right? And we're sort of talking about, you know, 
past careers. And I, I sort of, you know, my dad was a great influence on me in, in terms of always understanding that you want to have the next door open. Doesn't mean you have to walk through it, but you're always sort of planning and thinking ahead. And, and I think he learned that he played for Bo Schembechler at the Miami University of Ohio. And so I think he got that from, from him, but, you know, and really sort of planning and preparing. And that's what all sports is about. You're constantly preparing and planning for scenarios. You know, that's what you, you know, that's what you do of what can happen over the course of a game. And if you sort of take that same approach, you know, in life, I think that's, that's, that, that helps people out. You know, if you can sort of constantly planning for the next thing, again, even if you don't take it, but from a coach perspective, I had one coach at UVA, you know, I was a guy that went to UVA. I never really worked out. I was a more of an athletic type guy, although, you know, it's sort of hard to believe at this day and age with the athletes running around. But, you know, I was a 6'4", 230-pound kid who never really lifted weights, played tight end and linebacker in high school. You know, immediately I get there, all of a sudden my hand's in the dirt, you know, and I'm redshirted. And, you know, they probably looked at my frame and said, God, if we actually, if he actually lifted, you know, for more than, you know, a couple times a year, we could put some weight on him. And so I, I transitioned to defensive line and about – you know, I started as a sophomore there and at UVA, but we hired a coach, or George did, a guy named Larry New. And Larry was a tough, like, like tobacco-chewing, dog-cussing defensive line coach. And we, were, we, we had talent. Uh, of the four starters, three of us played in the NFL for at least six years. Uh, even I, before I was a snapper, I played defensive line for four and a half, five years. Right. Um, and so – but Larry was the first guy to really make me feel uncomfortable, right, with sort of challenging me of what I can get done. And, you know, just the lack of excuses and sort of the bottom line business and doing things the right way and, you know, preparing the right way and not only physically but mentally and emotionally, you know. He was the one that I think really taught me about, you know, what it's like to really compete um as you get at the higher levels right it's no longer you can rely on just and you see so many star high school athletes of any sport you know they get to college and it's just they can't handle that intensity with which you have the commitment level and i think that commitment level that he demanded from all the guys that i played with on on the defensive line in those years at uva um you know you know i think that's i've taken that and really you know, again, whether it was at Under Armour, whether it's in the pros, whether it's my player association work, or, or now in my new business, like that commitment level is just needed. What was and his it's name? Very Ryan? What was Larry his... New? Larry, Larry New. And the mm-hmm. George you're referring to, of course, was the great George Welsh, yeah. the longtime yeah. coach at UVA. And you, you played on some good Virginia teams, right? You guys went to bowl yeah. games. Yeah. No, we were good. I mean, we were. I mean. Uh, if it wasn't for FSU coming into the conference and the conference not being ready, right? And you know, and it really wrong, we probably would have won two or three ACC championships. We, you know, this is pre-ACC championship game, and this is, you know, I tell you know my kids who don't understand like eleven games in a bowl game, like that was it. Yeah. Um, you know, you got to play, but I think the worst season we had was seven four. The best season we had was nine and three or ten and two. Um, you know, we finished top 20 in most years, if not, except for maybe the one year we were, I mean, we're seven and four and you can do a bowl game, right? Like that, yeah. that, if that tells you something, now you got, they're begging for teams that are five and seven to come or six and six, you know, and they're playing 12, you know, like, right. um, so yeah, seven, four didn't get you to a bowl game back then. So, um, it's a different time. It's all good. Uh, but yeah, no, we have some really good teams, super talented teams, you know, sort of top 10 defensive teams are, 
our defensive coordinator is a guy named Rick Lance, who is like this devilish little bald man that uh, uh, just could call a great game and, and motivate the hell out of us. And this is, you know, we had Rondy Barber and, and James Ferrier and Jamie Sharper. And we had some really talented guys uh, on defense back then. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it was great. It was a t- ton of fun. So we're talking to Ryan Keel. Ryan played many years in the NFL, uh, primarily as a long snapper. Yep. Uh, I, I, I don't know the answer to this. Did you long snap at UVA? I was only allowed to snap field goals because George didn't want me running, covering punts, and then going right to play defense. Got it. So but- I, kick, I snapped for only my last year because they had another guy who was good at it. So I always sort of just did it. But really, Kevin, I got into snapping because I was – it was actually, I think, in Washington. You know, so I – and, you know, I had a year there where I started, you know, I don't know how many games, six, eight, ten games at defensive line. Right. And, and like, the next year, like, you think, well, I played – and I played pretty well for Norv. And, and then the next year, like, drafting three defensive linemen and, you know, like, I'm like, Jesus, like, fighting for your job every year. And, and, and I wasn't – and, you know, I wasn't – I was a – more of an intense, like I was a smart guy, the tough guy, the guy who could play four positions. Like that was my role um, on defense, right? I could sort of, they could plug me in anywhere and you're going to lose with me because I wasn't going to screw you up. I may not beat the tackle or the guard for a sack, but you could sort of, I could work within the defense and play the scheme and sort of read formations and, and quickly get guys playing the right plays on the defensive line front. But they were play, constantly you know, trying to replace me, you know, so – I'm like, well, screw this. They don't try to replace the long snapper every year. Like, if I can really hone that skill, that can keep me in the league, you know. And so when I went to Cleveland um, is when I really started doing it. I played two years. I did both. I, I was sort of the – So the you, did, you didn't do any long snapping in Washington, or did you? I forget. No, I did not. I did not. Who was the long snapper? Do you remember? Dan, Dan Turk. Oh, yeah, of, course. of course. Of course, yeah. Year. Trevor, my first year, and then Dan came in because Trevor retired, I think, and then. Um, well, because Matt Turk is the, the name Matt Turk in 1996, and you were on that team with North's yeah. team in '96. Matt Turk was the last first team All Pro from this organization until Brandon Sheriff was wow. named first team All Pro this year. That's how wow. long it had been. Turk was the last one, and that's right. Dan Turk, his brother, and there's that yep. famous game uh, in a playoff game at Tampa when they had a chance at the end to kick a field goal to win the game. Yeah, and Dan, he bounced one back. He bounced one back, and yeah. and basically it really. I mean, he had major issues psychologically from that and ended up de- oh, yeah. dying a few years later of cancer, like at a yeah. super young age. Yeah, no, it, it, can, it can definitely mess with you. And that's one of the things I learned. Like, you, people don't realize, I mean, like, the, like it's just, you know, you, what I try to, I equate it to a golf swing, right? Like, you just try to, like, get groove it and you try to, you're constantly sort of tinkering. But it also can get in your head if you let it. You know, thankfully, I never had an issue like Dan did over the, my years in Cleveland and New York snapping, but that doesn't mean it didn't like the thought of it didn't enter my head. <laughs> like I just, luckily I did, you know, and I probably had some that weren't great, but you know, I had a punter or a holder that bailed me out, you know, but it's, um, it's a, yeah, it's in the back then, you know, with the physicality that it was, cause there was all the snappers were bigger back then. Cause you could pound on them, right. You could put two or three guys on them and, and, and try to work them. And a lot of, I mean, there was one special teams coach in Cincinnati when I was in Cleveland, he literally told me, he's like, I, I feel like I've got a better chance of hurting you, not hurt, he didn't say the word hurting, but basically if I can punish you throughout the game and get a bad snap at the end of the game, we have a better odds of getting that than blocking. 
Yeah. So so they'd scratch you. They'd do all sorts of stuff to your hands and stuff after you know, after the kicks and things. Try to step on your hands <laughs> just to try to mess with you. Right, because it was a bit. It was a big play. It was always a a very important play in a game, and it could be yeah. the play. Um, yeah. In the game, so you get you go to Cleveland from Washington. So uh-huh. tell us how the whole long snapping thing came together. Yeah, well, you know, we're it's an expansion team, and uh, since I had spent one year in San Francisco, Dwight Clark and, and Carmen Policy came to Cleveland. The owner was Al Lerner, uh, who's a great guy, uh, MBNA bank guy, super like self made man, and, and he was awesome. And and uh, and so I knew them from San Francisco. So um, I went there and and. You know, we go to the first uh, mini camp, and you know, it's expansion. You had four mini camps and all these practices, and it was like Lord of the Flies. Like everyone's just trying to survive, right? You know, every practice, and everyone's just fighting. I mean, imagine expansion. It's like you're fighting for your career, essentially. You know, because you know, and so you know, you've got bloated rosters and everything. And they had one other guy who could do it, and and they're sort of looking around. I'm like, well, you know, I sort of saw the opportunity, so I really started to work on it that first off season in Cleveland. And then the other guy got hurt. And so now they were just down to me. And Ken Wisenhunt uh, was the special teams coach. He said, listen, I love how you do it. Plus, you can play defense. And so, um, you know, it's, your, it's basically yours to lose, you know, um, because I'd proven over all these mini camps and stuff. So, you know, we go into the preseason and I was doing that. And I would run from defensive line drills to snap and back and back and forth. And, you know, we'd, we'd do two-minute drills and I'd be on, on defense and then, they get the field goals. They put me out, pull me out. I take my gloves off and, you know, snap it back. You know, it's pretty challenging. But um, anyway, earned their trust and, and ended up uh, for two years. I played defense and snapped, and then I got in a fight with Orlando Brown in practice, uh, which wasn't the best career decision from my physical perspective. And I broke my hand, um, broke the bone in my hand, and I couldn't snap for like I had. To, I figured it out. I got done in the in the game, but the coach said, "Okay, that's enough. You're dumb enough to get in a fight." and risk your hands, then you can't play defense anymore. So I stopped playing defense uh, two years into Cleveland. Orlando Brown you got into a fight with in yeah, Cleveland seriously. and broke your hand. So it sounds like the way you described it and the final result that it didn't go well for you. What happened? Well, I mean, he, you know, I mean, you know, I tended to chirp out there a little bit, but not like, Kevin, not like in the nasty talking shit sense but more like just sort of like engaging i would call it engaging and so i just was kindly telling zeus that he was tipping a stance and um i could tell when he was passing i could tell when it was run and i could tell when he was walking down and if you can tell those three things before the snap right you're in good like, shape you're in pretty good shape right and so he just didn't like the fact that i was telling him this and i was i, I, I was just trying to help him kevin that's all i was trying to do <laughs> and so he uh but he didn't like my tone um, and so you know, he decided to, you know, give me a little extra shove and, and, and often in, in football, at least back then, it's a little bit of prison rules. Like you can't really be bitched around like that. So I had to turn around and I started after him. And as soon as I threw the first punch, I was started, you know, yelling, break it up, break it up, break it up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Throw the first punch and hope everybody jumps in. It's no, the, it's the, the bar rules. on my back. He's just pounding, you know, and. I happened to catch him on the uh, on the side of the um, helmet, uh-huh. and I just cracked cracked a bone in my top uh. of my hand, and um, I didn't really feel it because I was you know adrenaline's going pretty good, but um, yeah. So you know, Butch Davis was the coach at the time, and he said, "All right, you know that's enough. Like if you're stupid enough to get in a fight with Zeus and break your hand when you're our only snapper, and I was the only one we had, um, 
And so, you know, again, I could snap and stuff, but that was sort of enough for them to say, you know, you, you go snap and put your visor on, stand on the sidelines when we're not when we're practicing. And so that's what I did. You know, those Cleveland teams, correct me if I'm wrong, they were de- they were decent teams. Well, the end, the first two, we sucked. Okay. Um, uh, we were bad. And then Butch came in, my last, in fact, the last playoff game Cleveland played was my last year in Cleveland in 02 before this year. Uh, the last playoff game that Cleveland played before this year was 2002. You were on that team, and that was a Butch Davis team. Yeah, Butch Davis in Pittsburgh um, in the snow. We lost, We had a 12-point lead with four minutes to go and lost. Yeah, So and, and, um, and you were the snapper in that game? Yep, yep. Who was the kicker? Uh, Phil Dawson was a kicker. Gardaki was a punter. Antoine Randall L. ran one back. Oh, he did? Yeah, <laughs> son of a bitch. Off, off of a punt. <laughs> yeah, off a punt. Son yeah. of a bitch. I just, I just pulled up the box score. He had a 66-yard punt return in the second quarter. You guys lost. You were up 33-21 in the fourth quarter. And yeah. Tommy Maddox yes. led the Steelers I, back over a Kelly Holcomb-led Browns team. Yeah, and Sleepy, we used to call Kelly Sleepy. I mean, are you just trying to kick me the balls here? Because, like, it's just I'm reliving this now, Kevin. I mean, it's like we it was third and eight. I'll tell you, third and eight. And Dennis Northcutt, who, if you look up, he had a hell of a game. Yeah. Dennis had a 12-yard out that Kelly put on the numbers. Now it's snowing and it's mud, and Dennis is awesome. So, I, I mean, it happens. But it was third and eight with 4-12 to go. And I think it's 4-12 was the number, and he dropped it. And that would have been a first down, which means we would have run, yeah, more, you know, run, run, clock. run. We punt. We're up twelve. We're up two scores. Yeah, and that would have been. But a we ball punted. Game. We yeah, we punted, and all of a sudden, quickly, and then they three and out, quick score, and that was it. You know, but if we catch that ball, they they probably won't get two two drives. You know. I mean, that had to be Tommy Maddox's best game of his career, right? Like a bit, his biggest moment. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't. I stopped By the way, you played problem. with you played with one of the all time you know QB busts, right? And Tim Couch. Yeah, Tim. Tim didn't didn't quite grasp it. I mean, I, well, I played with Heath in, in Washington too. So, oh, that's uh, true. Yeah, I've, I've had a couple of them, but um, yeah, no, Tim didn't quite. You know, I, Tim was a good guy and a super good athlete. You know, I just think you know some of the his mechanics and stuff. I, I don't know enough to know why he didn't work out, but. Um, and plus, it was a bad team, you know. And you see a lot of the quarterbacks who go to the expansion teams just don't quite pan out, you know. Right. Like they just, you know, it's car down in Houston or whatever else. I mean, so then, how did you get to New York and play for the Giants to finish up your career for, for uh, as a long snapper? Yeah, I was unrestricted, and so that, actually that game, the Giants were in the playoffs in San Francisco that year, and uh, their snapper right. bounced like three back. Exactly. That's that famous like 39-38 game or something yeah, like that. Yeah, Trey Junkin, who put snap forever and did it forever. He just you know, sort of didn't just have a day. And, and so I was unrestricted, and they had a problem, and New York had had a problem for a year. And so it sort of turned into a bigger deal than I ever wanted it to be. But, yeah, so I signed as an unrestricted free agent with New York. Um, a, a snap, I would imagine that the snaps that you remember more than any other were those that didn't go well. G- give me one or two that you absolutely remember and were the, were the worst nightmare of snaps. If you had any, I didn't, I didn't have any nightmares, so I didn't throw any over the head or I didn't bounce any back or, and we always got the kickoff. In fact, I don't think I ever had a punt blocked, um, I mean, all the years I snapped. Was there ever a missed kick blamed on the snap? Um, 
I'd say questionably. <laughs> <laughs> fine. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say, you know, okay, a little high or a little inside, and they missed the kick. And now, again, the lot, I, was, you know, I was fortunate a lot of the kickers I was with would never blame the snapper. Uh, Phil Dawson, who kicked forever, who was awesome. And, you know, in, in New York, we had Jay Feely and Steve. We went through a few of them, Steve Christie, and, and then finished with Lawrence Tynes. I mean, you know, those guys generally would. But maybe, you know, you know, the holder maybe doesn't quite get it. And, the, you know, the, and sometimes the coach would just get on you just to sort of straighten you up a little bit, you know. and Because at that point, I'm a little older and, and you know, it's I'm clearly not playing defense. And it turns into a pretty good gig, you know. Um, so they always wanted to sort of keep you a little bit on your edge if it wasn't perfect. I will say a funny story in Cleveland. We had a coach who ended up being a, a longtime special teams coach, Jerry Rossberg. He was with the Ravens for a long time. And he's a great guy, and I'm, and I'm super happy for him. He, he recently retired, but he, he came to Cleveland, and Chris Gardocki punted forever and, and won a Super Bowl in Pittsburgh, and myself and Phil. And, you know, he, after, like, a mini camp, he, like, gave us, like, this breakdown of our practices. Like, it was all, like, these sheets of paper, you know. And we didn't meet. We didn't do it. Like, we were, like – and we he, he called us up to his office to watch tape. We're, like, we don't watch tape. Like, that's not what we do. But he was – he had come from Notre Dame, and he's college, and he's – really raw raw and, and so we basically went up there and, and i remember gardaki took the pieces of paper crumbled them up and threw them in the trash as he walked into the meeting room <laughs> and and jerry looked at us like what, what are you guys doing I'm like we don't look at that stuff like like we we know like you you know you do it enough you know when you're right when you're not you know um it's a feel that you have you don't need to have anybody watch tape and tell you it's a you bit know, of a lonely from. existence though when you're a kicker punter or long snapper right Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was much. It was it was easier to do. I, I oh, it's a know, great gig. Played, you got paid you well. Got, you got played great. I mean, but you know, as a guy that this is sort of again when it was a little bit more physical and and you were a lot of the guys played other positions. I found that easier. Now guys are sort of trained and sort of you know, it's almost like training to be like a left-handed reliever. Um, you know, guys have they don't have you know I struggled with it initially because I was used to sort of being with the guys and being with a defensive group and like practicing and going through the bags and doing all the individual periods and all that stuff. And, and, um, you know, when you sort of all of a sudden you say, no, you can't do that anymore. Then I mean, you, you figure out things to do and there's a lot of, you know, games and side hustles and things you can start. But, um, yeah, no, it's definitely like, you know, with, in the, with regards to snapping and not, not to you know, sort of gets boring for folks, but like you don't realize you, you need one until you don't have one. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a little bit like a kicker and it's a little bit like a punter. Like when you have a bad one, you know, it. if you have a good one, you sort of take, you, you basically end up taking it for granted, which is if you're any good, you never want to be the reason for a team to lose. The only reason uh, anybody would know your name really. I mean, Nick Sunberg's yeah. been here now for over a decade. Yeah. I'm going to ask you about him here in a moment, but the only reason anybody ever knows a long snapper's name is when he, you know, when he fucks it up and right. you know, but at the same time, you know, I asked you and, and you couldn't recall any bad snaps. And I'm, by the way, I'm not suggesting that you had one because I know you did this for a long period of time. You were obviously very good. Do you remember a specific massive kick, you know, a field goal to win a game that, that, you know, the whole operation and the pressure of it? Yeah. Yeah. Pittsburgh, when I was in Cleveland, I had a few of them in Cleveland. You know, we were horrible. I think it was our first year there. And we got smoked our first game against Pittsburgh um, in the openers, like Sunday night TV and the whole thing. And we went to Three Rivers. This is in Three Rivers. um, And we had a kick to win it. 
Mike Vrabel had a uh, personal foul, got us 15 more yards. We like ran a play. We screwed up. The, like now I hear you bitching about the coaches. That's been the, that's that's <laughs> managing the clock. We screwed that up, and so we ended up having to run on to win it after getting blown out by like 30, maybe more. I don't even know. And um, and I remember, and, the, and I got down, and, and one of the Steelers spit on my hand, and I could feel it. Like I heard him, and I felt it. And I remember snapping. I got blown up back, and all these bodies were So I didn't know if it went in or not. I could only tell by the crowd noise. And Phil made it. And um, the guy who spit on me was like laying next to me. And I turned to him. I said, "Are you the guy that just spit on my hand?" And he looked at me and gave me this look. And I'm like, I sort of go, I go, "Don't do that." Like we made the kick. Like you know, like. <laughs> do you remember who it was? Yeah, my bad. He's like, "My bad, bro." I'm like, "All right, don't," worry. you know. But that was a fun one because we won that, and it was such a big deal to the Cleveland. And we were so bad as a team, and Pittsburgh was really good. Um, so there's that was sort of the first one, but we, you know, that one I remember really well. And there's some others in there that. Do you remember who remember. spit? Do you remember who it was who spit on your hand? Um, no, I can picture the number. Okay. It's like ninety three. I think it was ninety three. By the way, um, you know, you you just mentioned something, which is you know, um, the situation, which probably is the one situation more than any other that you probably practiced. I'm guessing, which is no timeouts, and you've got to rush the the field goal team on to line up for a kick at the end of a game or end of a half with no timeouts. How how many seconds does it take? Sixteen. Yeah, that's what Be- that's what Belichick says. Yeah. Yeah, sixteen. It's sixteen. I mean, a seconds. little bit. A little bit can depend on what hash, because um, you got to go a little further. You know, if it's the further hash, and quite frankly, if it's like if you're at the like the thirty-five or forty, that's easier than if you're like at the eight. Because you're closer. Yeah, you're closer. So that can jog it a little bit. But 16 is an easy, easy rule. You know, it's sort of a rule of thumb. Right. Um, all right. So uh, I'm just curious. Your final year in the career in your career was 2006 as a Giant. You were only 34. Why did you? Why did you well, hang it up? Be, be, your well, posi- I was, actually, it was it was 07. Okay. I last year playing. I got hurt in the start of 07. Okay. With um, with the Giants. With the Giants, I tore my calf and my Achilles. And that was it. And, and that was it. And I was like, and I know it for whatever reason, we won the Super Bowl that year in New York. And um, I didn't get to play in it because I got hurt. And it was a bad one. And for whatever reason, I, I you know, as a guy that was undrafted, that sort of had to fight and claw and, and you know, carve out this little niche and figure out how to sort of compete. You know, I didn't, um, for whatever reason, 12 was the number I wanted to get to. And that's what I got to, you know. And so I always knew that was my last year. Did now, you did you get a Super Bowl ring? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so that was the 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 first, you know, Eli Manning over. Yep. That's the David Tyree. So yep. you you but but were you hurt in the regular season? I was hurt in the preseason. Oh, in the preseason, got it. Yeah. So I didn't get to play at all. Yeah. But it was a bad one. I mean, I was in a boot for 6 months. I mean, it was a, you know, it was all my whole left lower left leg was, you know, blown up. Um and so, you know, that's, I mean, I've been there, but that was my fifth year there. And we had built all this thing and Tom had come and Eli had matured and all these things. And, and, you know, and Mike was a great leader, Strahan. And we had a great, really group, great group of guys. And um, what was Coughlin really like? I like Tom. I mean, you know, he has his way, but like you knew where you stood. And um, when you played well, he told you. When you played like crap, he told you. And, and um, you know, but, but that's okay. 
you know, again, I think most players just want to know where they stand and they don't want to be lied to, you know, and so even if it's bad news. And I think Tom was really good at that. And another thing I think I appreciate about Tom, you know, again, just being around him and watching the team play. And again, as a sort of a, a guy that's snapping where I've been out there, but now, you know, you spend a lot of time watching, you know, obviously um, we always played to win. Like Tom didn't, like it didn't matter. Like you know, preseason, okay, maybe not. But like every game like this, if it's, you know, fourth and four on the plus 40 and we're down two, or maybe down five, like he he's going for it. Like he's gonna go. We got to get points. Like he he doesn't punt. Until, like he would. You know he all. I always felt like he was always very aggressive in terms of playing to win and and calling the game and making those head coach decisions around around trying to win. Um, and so he put a premium on competing and winning. And he was and he backed it up with how he called games. Bottom line is he's won everywhere he's gone. I mean, even as an executive, right? I mean, the Jags the other few years back had a chance. By the way, you know, that year, 2007, um, you know, that's a season for around here I'll never forget because that was the Sean Taylor season. Yep. Um, where he was killed. Um, but the the playoffs that year, that was the championship game at Lambeau, played mm-hmm. uh, you know in minus you know, five degrees with the icicles falling off of Coughlin's nose and face during that game. Yep. And that would have been, I'm, I'm curious, worst weather game you ever had to long snap in was what? Uh, it snowed six inches in Cleveland during the game one year at the end it's colder in hell and then new york the wind new york the wind really in old giant stadium the winds you'd get a cold like you know a rainy uh 34 degree day with 20 miles an hour wind like that was tough do you know nick sunberg I don't know him, no. Okay. I mean, he's – like, I've, I've always thought, and we've had these conversations on, on various shows in the past, it's like the long snapper in the NFL, what a gig. You get paid very handsomely to basically – now, it's there's a lot of pressure in the job, but um, it's a pretty good gig if you're good at it, and he's lasted yep. a long period of time. Do you remember how much money you made your final year? Yeah, I made about – Oh, about seven hundred grand, maybe seven fifty, something like that. What are they making now? What I, I mean, I could look it up in a second. But I what don't is know. A lo- I mean, most of the guys are minimum guys, so like I was a veteran minimum, so like um, you know, maybe it was seven. I don't know what it was, but something like that. Uh, you know, I, I imagine he's you know maybe he has a bonus tied to it. He's signed, but no, most of the guys are smart enough to. That's why we're all player reps too, right? Um, he's smart enough that you stick around for a long time, and you're smart enough to. They, I don't want to price myself out of a job either. Um, but yeah, once you sort of once you earn the organization's trust, I mean, the last thing an organization wants to have to apologize for is deciding to go cheap on the long snapper and the guy bounces one back on a game-winning kick. <laughs> right. Or like it just it makes no sense for them to save a couple hundred grand to do that. You know. Uh, we're talking to Ryan Keel. Ryan had a long NFL career as a long snapper. He was a really good player at UVA and was one of those high school athletes that anybody that was in high school remembers as being a tremendous all-around athlete. My younger brother played with Ryan in high school, and I remember my father and I just saying, my God, that's the best high school defensive player, linebacker, we've ever seen. You really were a hell of a linebacker um, as a high school player. All right, I want to talk about Jordan Spieth and you identifying Spieth and signing him um, to the Under Armour deal. And we'll do that right after this word from one of our sponsors. This is the story of the one. 
As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. That's the worst stroke of the week. He saved it for right there. Never saw anything else that looked like that. <laughs> no. The one he holding 16 was just phenomenal. So that was the... He'd already decided to celebrate, and why not? One of the epic performances in the annals of the sport. Back when Jordan Spieth was taking the golf world by storm, that was his win at the 2015 Masters. He was an Under Armour guy, and Ryan Keel is our guest on the podcast today, and Ryan was with Under Armour and is credited for really identifying Spieth and getting him signed to Under Armour. So we just talked about your NFL career as a long snapper. You um, end up you know, leaving football in 2007. Tell me about your life professionally, how you made it to Under Armour, and that way, before we get to the Spieth stuff, what your responsibilities uh, there were and how you grew in the company. Yeah, so I, had, you know, I started there in January of 2009. I was there for 10 years. Uh, great run, you know, big, you know, fast paced, publicly traded company uh, around some really, really good people. Um, most of them have all moved on at this point as leadership tends to turn over, you know, when the senior guys turn over and then right. everyone else sort of tends to turn over as well. And, and um, so, so, but the group that we had there at the time was, was really a special group and really allowed us, you know, the ability to grow at the rate that we were sort of, you know, we were a high growth company. So with that comes sort of high risk and sort of fast pace and, all those things when it comes to investing and, and doing things. And, you know, I, I, I did a lot of work on the sponsorship side, a lot of the work in the, you know, identifying talent, uh, athletes, you know, college deals, professional deals, um, working a lot with agents and things to try to find out, um, you know, who could be the next great stars. And I'm, I'm really proud of the group that we had. They were assembled and, and Jordan was one of them, but you know, Bryce Harper and we had um, Tom Brady and Mike Phelps and, uh, at one point, I think we had all four MVPs plus the PGA Tour Player of the Year in 2015, Cam Newton, you know, on a, on a budget that was, you know, infantile compared to maybe our competitors. So we were really good at identifying talent. And and I, I had a really good group of team, a team that helped me along with this, obviously. And, and uh, so I certainly shouldn't take full credit, but we put together a model of the kind of athletes we wanted and, and, uh, from a, from a character perspective, from a personality perspective, from a performance perspective, and, and ceiling and um, and floor, quite frankly, and uh, and so we really was like sort of building a portfolio, and I spent a lot of my time doing that, and then and and in that we signed Jordan, and then I, I actually started the golf business there as well, um, and did that for three years, and sort of built a business within a business, which was super fun before and going before going back to the sports side and. And running the global sports group and essentially trying to do what we did in North America, doing it in Europe, doing it in Latin America and South America and doing it over in uh, Asia. And so, um, yeah, you know, it's interesting that people ask because we were really fortunate. Like our hit rate, rate was really high. Um, and one of the reasons I, I give a lot of credit to an old scout uh, from the NFL, a guy named Joe Collins, who was actually in San Francisco when I was there for my one year, was in Cleveland for three years of my four years there. 
and was in New York for all five of my years there, just randomly. And I got to know Joe really, really well. And and Joe, I would because I started snapping and not playing defense, I would go stand next to the scouts and just shoot the shit with them, and ask him, "What are you looking at? What do you what do you what are you trying to see? What you know?" And some guys were totally technique focused, and other guys were you know motor focused, and other guys were how are the teammates? And you know like all of these different. Everyone sort of everyone looked at everything, but then you could tell guys sort of weighted certain things. And so Joe was a guy. I, I Joe liked. Um, you'll appreciate this. Joe liked draft Miller genuine draft by draft in an ice cold mug <laughs> and in Albany New York there yeah. was a bar around the corner from where we were doing training camp that served it and so like three times a training camp I would take him to go get a beer and I would pick his brain because he was a scout forever he was always doing the southeast you know for teams so he's like you know big football area and stuff and important NFL teams to get the southeast of the country right and so I took a lot of the lessons from Joe and a lot of lessons from the other scouts that stood around and, and tried to implement those lessons into the into my team at Under Armour in terms of when it came to picking talent. And there's a lot of con- same things you're looking for, obviously not on the skill side, but from a character and personality and sort of compete level and things that you can that are the same. An athlete's the same whether they're male or female, what no matter the sport, a lot of it's the same makeup. And, um, and so what does that make? I, I, I want to get into some of the specific names that you mentioned and even go through it chronologically. I'm very interested. But, you know, I, you know you've know, you listened to Cooley and I have some of these conversations sure. over the years, and I'm really interested in that because I, I love sort of what goes into because it's so much more than just what they are athletically, you know, and so what are the key traits? What are the things that immediately are turnoffs or, you know, you're like, yeah, this is someone we'd want? You know, well, I'm not going to give you all the secrets, but, you know, but I'll say that, you know, to me, like, let's just take Jordan as an example. Like, here I'm an ex-NFL player. Yeah, I was, I'm a pretty good golf from a single, you know, sort of high single-digit guy, handicap. So I know enough to get around, but I don't know, like, I don't study someone's swing. Right. I don't do that. Like, I, you know, that wasn't with Jordan or any of the golfers we had, you know, what I would look at is like, you know, how they carried themselves. You know, that was my biggest thing because I felt that in an individual sport like golf or like tennis, like when you're the only person out there competing, like you've got to have a pretty thick skin. You've got to have a pretty broad back. Right. And you've got to have a compete level because you've got no one else there to pick you up. And so I, so I remember with Jordan um, one night, this is before we signed him, we were playing ping pong, right? And that son of a bitch, I played for, I mean, we played eight games. Like, we were in full sweat. Uh-huh. Okay, he's really good, but, like, I was going at it. I'm decent. And, like, he wasn't going to allow, like, he'd be like, let's best of three, best of five. Best, like, he's that guy. Like, you know, and, you know, like, I wanted to see, like, like here we are ping pong at 11 o'clock at night. And he's literally like taking off his sweatshirt because he's sweating. And I, I left that going, okay, like he's not afraid to compete. Like he may not be perfect, but he's gonna compete, right? And yeah. that's important. Yeah, like you know, right. and and when you're signing guys to contracts, and it doesn't matter what sport, again, like money only lessens your motivation. It doesn't make your motivation greater. And so the guys that are real, like I was around, I was fortunate. I've been around Tom Brady a ton. I signed him and, and got to know him really well. Like the le- the great ones that when I play with Jerry, when I play with Mike Strahan, when I play with Daryl here in Washington, like the best players, 
like their compete levels were always super, super high. And that doesn't mean the, the average player. I mean, I had a high compete level too. I just wasn't as good. Right. But like, if you don't have that, there's no way you're going to be great. So like that to me, like I always try to figure out a way, like how can I get them in a situation where I can really evaluate their compete level, you know? And so, you know, often that was going to look into when they didn't know I was watching because when I show up with a checkbook, right? Like it's, it's, they know that I'm there and they're going to put on a great face. So you got to get past that. So maybe show up when they don't think you're showing up, right? There's different things you can do and you watch for maybe the trees versus being right along the fence or whatever, you know, because you're trying to see, are they really like that? Or are they just putting on a show for me? So you try to put yourself in their shoes and then, and then work back from there. Uh, when you're, when you're identifying talents, particularly in that role, we are trying to be, you know, sign ambassadors and, and, um, you know, UA, we were winning to me was everything. Like, like in, in, even when we talk about, you know, you know, whether it's the local football team here, like winning matters, it always matters. And, um, and I think when you're signing talent, like that's got to matter to them, the, be the primary focus. I, um, I, I find that so fascinating. You know, I, I remember something Gary Clark, um, told me a long time ago, um, because Gary Clark, remember him, he was a competitor on the field, certainly. And he said, you've got to hate losing more than you love winning. And those those are the people that really, like, if you can identify the people that are absolutely devastated by losing, um, and they're good, uh, that's a pretty good combination. Um, and, you know, it's funny because Cooley and I have had this conversation so many times. His kids are super young. Yours are older. Mine are older now. Yours are younger than mine but I've always felt that it is something that is very innate that you're either born super competitive or born as a a person who hates to lose um, versus something that's acquired along the way you can learn how to compete better but ultimately the real killer competitors are born with it do you agree or disagree Um, I think that's probably closer to accurate than not I think that there's Listen, like, you know, compete, you know, your ability, your compete levels is, is, is probably something that's nurtured, you know, and then it's how you learn to control it. I mean, my 12 year old, bless his heart, like, he loses a game. It's like, I'm on suicide watch, right? Like, yeah. you know, like, he just, it doesn't matter if it's, if we're hitting the tennis ball or going to play golf. Like, you know, my, I, all my kids are sort of like that a little bit, but he's way up over the edge. The, the other two, the other two are, are competitive. So I just think that, you know, there's probably a couple different layers in there, but, um, you know, again, the money changes things, right? And that's where on the professional side, you know, a lot of people are competitive because of the, like, it's the whole idea of like, do you love being an, an athlete because of the money or do you love your sport? Right. right? And like, or, or what your sport provides, you know, and, and weaving through that, the psychology of it. I mean, I always felt I had a advantage because I'd been on that side of the fence. And although I wasn't a big money guy and I was sort of a bottom feeder roster guy, I'd been around a lot of guys who had, and I saw it affect people differently and I could speak to it. And I got sort of, um, I was very authentic when I would talk to the athletes because I sort of had this, you know, retired athlete card that I could play and I knew what was going through their head, you know? And so if someone had a bad stretch or whatever else, I could, I could lob a call in and, and um, I could sort of commiserate with them because I had bad stretches. Right. And I felt like, oh, man, I'm really not playing well. I could get cut or I could, you know, 
I'm not doing exactly what I should be doing. I'm losing it because I'm getting older or whatever it may be. Like I've always felt like I had that card and I think um, I can sort of maybe sense it or smell it a little bit quicker than others. Uh, when you're talking about identifying athletes and, and that helped us avoid some mistakes and we still made, you know, our, our fair share, but we also avoided some that maybe would have been much bigger. So when you got to Under Armour, um, you, you know, you're out, just for everybody. So you understand what Ryan's been talking about. He's tasked with identifying, you know, um, people that will become Under Armour clients, you know, players in sports. And so who was your first big get? Oh man. Um, I mean, big, big was Jordan. Um, who was, Tom was, who was the one where plank and anybody else said, Oh man, he's going to, he's going to be really good at this. Uh, I think it was probably Jordan. I mean, listen, Kevin was, I mean, we had a lot of people. I mean, the, the, the biggest challenge I had there was that you had a lot of fans and the last thing you can be as a fan, right. You know, and so, you know, they'd see someone play well in a college game. I'd get five text messages going, you know, go, <laughs> sign, go sign Graham Harrell. Right. You know, because he threw for 500 yards for Texas Tech. You know, I was like, well, everybody throws for 500 yards for Texas Tech. A, it's the Big 12, and B, it's Texas Tech. Yeah. Like, like you know, we're not worried about that stuff. Like, I talked to I, the, the scouts. Like, they're the ones who tell me who's good or not. You know, in golf, I'd, I'd go talk to the equipment manufacturers or the, uh, the, club, the clubby guys. You know, like, that's just – you know, I'd go talk to those guys. I wasn't going to listen to agents. I wasn't going to go listen to media. I wasn't, I go find the guys, you know, my dad often told me like, you know, it's that whole idea. It's a little bit of money ball, right? Go where there's, go to find the information where it's from the undervalued source. So and how did you identify Jordan? Who, who, who led you to Jordan and, and how old was he at the time? I first noticed him at the Byron Nelson when he finished in the top five, I think it's 16. And I was watching on TV, and that's when I started, okay, I got a guy here. And then I started, really, it was the ping reps on the tour, even though he was a Titleist guy. It was the ping reps. Um, it was a couple of caddies that had I've really respected that had been on um, practice rounds with him. Um, those were the two guys that I, and then I talked to someone at the AJGA, American Junior Golf Association. And he had played a ton of AJGA events. In fact, he's, he's, I think, only like second to Tiger in terms of success on the AJGA, which is, again, the highest level sort of schoolboy and girl tournament uh, touring on this, in the country. And, um, and so those are the guys that, the, that I really pinged and, and, and honed in on. And then I first followed him in person. He was playing here on a sponsor's exempt at Congressional. Um, and that was probably I don't even know what year it was in the in the Tiger tournament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I was supposed to pick him up at ten. It was a practice round. And when you walk with someone to practice round, you're inside the ropes. You're walking down the middle of the fairway with him. I actually picked him up at six, and I walked three holes, seven, eight, nine, without him knowing I was watching. Um, nor any nor his dad. I, I was going to get introduced to his dad, and so I watched. And I. And I you know, Kevin, I looked at things like, you know, how he looked at fans. I looked at, you know, if he made a putt or if he missed a putt. Did he flip his putter in his bag or did he hand his putter to the caddy? Um, you know, how did he walk down the middle of the fairway? Did he put his shoulders back or was he, you know, sort of, was he, you know, zeroing in or was he sort of more affable and lazy and, you know, or not lazy is a bad word, but sort of more relaxed. You know, I wanted to see how that was, even in a practice round. You know, as, a, as an 18-year-old kid, like, how was he looking – you know, was he, I mean, he's, he's playing with 30-year-olds, professional men, you know. Like, how is it, was, did he, 
was he was he giving way to them, or did he, you know did did he was I getting the sense that he felt like he belonged, right? And you know you could see that, but like, does he ask them about reading greens, or was he going over looking at the ball, going, yeah, I think it moves two balls, you know, like right, you know, as an eighteen year old, that's pretty encouraging, you know, if you sort of if you act like yeah, no, he's this is what he does, you know, um, versus being a little quiet or more reserved. Uh, so I watched that for three holes, and then I walked with him for the back nine. Um, you know, and he, I'd talk with him in between shots and his dad was there. And, and that's when I first really, you know, when, once I got after that, I was like, wow, this is, he's got something. And, you know, he had a great start. He's been through a little bit of, I was, he's been through a little bit of a rough patch. You know, I say, tell guys, you know, sometimes you get in the woods, you know, and you can't find your way out. And he's been in the woods for a while. Um, but you know, I think he's, he's had a good, really good start this year and, and, uh, he's a hard worker and super talented. So yeah, he's playing, yeah. he's playing well now, but you, you clearly, you know, it's under armor. And at the time the inroads into that sport were limited compared to others. Right. Right. So how did you end up landing him? I mean, you've, you developed this relationship, by the way, um, you know, that, that day at congressional, you knew the course at your home course. Yeah. Um, yeah. so the, uh, uh it, it, was it, how did it just connect between the, the two of you, you yeah. and the parents? No, I think myself and the parents and him, I think, I think they appreciated the parents appreciated the fact that, you know, I got my MBA while I was playing the football and I was went to UVA and I sort of had this view of sport as like a gateway to the, your next thing. And even though golf, you can play for obviously your whole life. It's still, you know, at the time they didn't know how good he was going to be. So I think, you know, this is before all the winning, right? So as a parent, you're going, God, I'd rather have him hang around with that guy who actually prepared for when the sport was going to stop. And we, we talked about like the importance of education, you know, and like I asked him that in front of his parents, you know, and, you know, at the time he's going, yes, I'm definitely going to finish the university of Texas. Like, um, but I would talk about the, uh, how valuable I thought that was. And if we can help, I'd do it and, and stuff. And I think that parents really appreciate that. You know, it turns out I don't think he ever did. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> did he ever get his degree? Probably not. I don't think so. I mean, you win as quickly as he did. Yeah. The goals tend to shift. But still, it was a nice window into his soul and, and so into the family. So I think there was some connection there. And then, again, I think Jordan and I, you know, connected. Yeah, he's Jordan's a huge sports guy. And so when I could talk to him about, you know, getting my butt kicked by Larry Allen at Texas Stadium, uh, you know, he, he appreciated that. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, I think that that's, um, you know, we sort of connected from that side. And then he had an advisor that I was close with as well. And, and you know, that helped. And, you know, I think we put a very compelling offer. And we told him, I said, listen, like, at the time, you know, I was getting ready to launch the golf brand. I was sort of sh- shifting roles in Under Armour. I'm like, listen, man, like, here's what we think of the future of this brand in golf. And, you know, it's, it's really challenging to, to build a – an endemic sport brand within a big sports sporting goods or, you know, company, because just the, 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 the endemic people, the avid, you know, users don't ever really accept you like a Nike and golf, or like it'd be really tough for Under Armour to go into like cycling or something, you know, that's right. Even tennis. Cause it just, you have these people, a really passionate group of people that just would never accept anybody, any brand, but brands that are only focused on their sport. And so you have to do certain things to sort of win people over and be and be authentic, which is a big word in, in, in my sort of vernacular. And and so I thought Jordan could really lead us there. And and some of the things, you know, the ideas we had around youth golf and investing in the game and things. So, um, yeah, it worked out. It worked out great. When he won that Masters in 2015, yeah. you were sitting there waiting for him, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. I mean, I was right there on the, you know, a sort of a walk up. And I remember, you know, of course, everyone's yelling and screaming. There's this 
young guy winning. And I remember, his, you know, he sort of walked by me at first a little bit, which is fine. I wasn't expecting anything. I mean, trust me, there's a lot bigger things you need right. to be thinking about. Uh, but his dad sort of grabbed him and goes, Ryan. And he turned to me, he goes, RK. And he gave me a big hug. And, and, um, yeah, it was, that was super. It was, it was a long night after that. Yeah, I uh, bet. Yeah, but um, it was well worth it. it. Was I mean, it was really special. How he plays down there is, is really special. He generally plays really well. What did that lead to? Landing Spieth for Under Armour, what did that lead to golf-wise for Under Armour? I mean, it put us on the map, right? It's, it's it, you know, like all of a sudden we've got a real golfer who's, you know, you know, super, you know, really good with the media and really good with fans and, and obviously he's talented at the time and a great story. And, um, you know, we grew the business essentially five X in three years. Um, and that's a small base to start because we never really put a lot of focus on it, but still it got, it got to be north of 150 million bucks in three years. Wow. And, um, and that, you know, I attribute a lot of that to how he was playing at the time. Um, this was fun. I really appreciate it. You know, I, I, I told you when I texted you last night and, and it's totally sincere. I've had you on like this list that I yeah. keep of, you know, I've got this podcast, it's longer form and I'm able to talk to people for a longer period of time. And you know how much, um, all of us, you know, in, in, in my family have sort of followed your career over yeah, the no, years. And so, um, I'm glad we finally caught up and, and, you know, we can have some football conversations when we get into the uh, the season next year, and we'll, we'll have you on again. I'd love to, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of growing up here, and we chat a little bit, you know, growing up here in the 80s and, and what the, the time the Redskins, now the Washington football team, what that team means to this city when they're good. Yeah. Um, as you know, and many people around here don't know, as you've said, I've heard you say many times, like they've lost a generation or two. Um, and, and But now you sort of feel like it's it's coming back around and, and you can see the energy, so I'm, I'm sure that's good for your business, as, as uh, but it's good for the city as well, and, and I look forward to it. Well, we need. I mean, this is the uh, this is the thing that a lot of people that listen to, to to the sports talk radio stations in town don't understand, because so 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 much of it has been negative and critical because the team has stunk for so long. But all of us desperately want them to win. It would be much better business for us if they won. And and you know this. I'm a lifelong born and raised fan. I want them to win. By the way, we'll end it on that. Who do you want their quarterback to be next year? Uh, you know, to me, you know, they've got to listen. They're building it the right way, right? You build it, you know, front to back, you know, in close to wide, right? Like that's what you do. Like and they're doing that the right way. Those, if you got a good D line and a good O line, you can make up for a lot of average players around you. Um, and but the quarterback matters. The quarterback matters the most. And so, to me, if it were me, I'd take as big a swing as you can at one of the top flight guys, uh, whether that's Wilson or Watson or whomever. If not, you know, I think you probably sit with what you got and continue to build around it and, and take another swing at a at a at a big guy next year. Um, I don't think going down the road of you know, you may need to bring in a veteran to, to sort of hold you over, but um, I don't think, you know, sort of, you know, being half pregnant is the right way to be. You know, like, go find your guy. I, you hear about stories like Carolina and that owner really trying to make a, a big push for Watson and maybe even mortgage a little bit more than he should, but that's how important that position is. So um, if you can get a young one that's that's really been proving himself, like Watson, like I wish he could they could do make that move and, and maybe overpay even initially, but I think you'll play off in the in the long run. But if that's not the case, then go with what you got and continue to build the the lines and and uh, 
and add a few more skills. By the way, by the way, um, as we just keep extending this longer and longer, which is fine. You know, being sort of a guy that played in the NFL, you know, went to this guy, Joe Collins, um, who was a longtime scout and picked his brain over, you know, beers in in upstate New York um, over and over again, who, you know, was was charged with identifying talent and recruiting talent. Did you ever consider a career in the NFL? I did. Um, I had a couple opportunities. Um I just, you know, I didn't think that, um, of course, I didn't know they were going to make as much money as they do now, <laughs> to be fair. But I also did the lifestyle stuff. I mean, coaching was never really, uh, I had an opportunity to do that, and I didn't want to do that, just again, lifestyle with my kids and all. You know, on the front office side of things, I thought that was intriguing at times because uh, I think there's a little more strategy involved there and, and a little more management and stuff. But at the end of the day, it wasn't for me, and, and um, I figured out another way to, to – still scratch that itch and and not have to worry about getting fired every two years. Uh, Great to catch up. Really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks, buddy. Good for you and and, uh, enjoyed it. And uh, good for you on all the success you've had. And uh, I look forward to continuing to to listen to you and Cooley and and Tom and when I go on my walks. It's always a good good way to get my hour and a half in. That's when I listen to a podcast as well. Uh, Ryan Keel, everybody. Okay, buddy. See you. All right, we'll finish up the show um, with a little bit of NFL news uh, that's come out this morning right after this word from one of our sponsors. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over 3 million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not ready our foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com All right, the NFL um, just a few hours ago set the salary cap number for the upcoming season. It'll be $182.5 million, obviously down from where it was at $198, um, all pandemic-related. Keep in mind that no team will actually have a $182.5 million cap number because their cap carryovers um, with uh, with various earned and unearned incentives from the year before. Um, so there's an adjusted cap number. Washington's number ultimately, um, according to uh, multiple uh, spots, is essentially you know after the sheriff deal, heading into free agency. You know with the Alex Smith reduction. 
um, or cap savings is going to be $38.9 million in cap space. That's number six. That's sixth in the league in available cap space. So we get to Monday in the beginning of uh, the free agency period, legal tampering anyway, with the league calendar um, on March 17th getting underway. Washington um, will have $38.9 million in cap space. All right, that's it for the day. Really appreciate the time spent with Ryan Keel. Back tomorrow with Tommy.